We call your attention that we do have a Christmas Eve service, and at that service we'll be taking an offering, and that is uh, for the PCA's Ministerial Relief Fund. It's a special offering. We take it every year, and um, it goes to provide for many of the uh, widows of pastors and missionaries, uh, those who retired and don't uh, have very much. It's the PCA is now uh, 40, almost 44 years old. We see a lot of folks have sort of moved through generationally and uh, uh, have retired. And a lot of people uh, didn't have a retirement when the PCA started, or they had to give it up to come into the PCA. And so uh, we created this fund to help those and uh, encourage you to come Christmas Eve to give generously to help uh, those. It's a real mercy ministry of the whole denomination for the widows, particularly widows of pastors and uh, missionaries. So with that said, if you would turn to me to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth is between Judges and Samuel. So you want to go there. And we're going to do the first half of the book of, uh, of chapter 4 of the book of Ruth today. So Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And please listen carefully as this is God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, Tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. 
May you act worthily in Ephaphrath and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. And we're often lost and wandering and in great need of a kinsman redeemer. We need to be reminded of your steadfast love. We confess that we often attempt to rush life, and we make a mess. We're not very good at waiting. And so teach us to wait and to learn and to hope in the coming of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come this morning to sit under your word, make it a light to our path and a lamp to our feet, showing us the way, leading us to Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's that time of year. And I remember when we had kids at home, um, each Christmas Eve at our house, uh, replayed the same scenario. After the candlelight service at church and the annual reading of the Christmas story and the always exciting dramatic reading of the night before Christmas, the obligatory viewing of White Christmas, then each of us would stay up and eat unhealthy snacks and wrap presents and pile them under the tree and essentially stay awake as long as our sleepy eyes would let us. And most of the time, that night felt like the longest night of the entire year. You're counting down the minutes until our hopes would be fulfilled. And the moment the sun came streaming through the windows, my kids, at least when they were little, would tear through the house, wake everyone up with shouts of joy. Christmas had finally arrived. Well, now that my children are all adults, Chronologically, anyway. Christmas doesn't quite possess, I'm getting a look, doesn't quite possess the same magical quality that it did during childhood. Nobody wakes up early anymore. In fact, we have to go get them and pretty much drag them out of bed. But we still wait with anticipation, but typically for things we know didn't magically appear under the tree. And now that I'm a grandfather, I've come to realize that many of us enter into this Christmas season carrying with us an unrealized dream or a hope deferred, at least for now. And we hold loss or disenchantment or yearning for more than another year on earth has given us. I know very few people who aren't earnestly waiting or desperately longing for something. We've been praying for what feels like an eternity. We're weary from looking at the clock, passing the time, wondering when our our hopes will become reality. So what does celebrating Christmas look like for a heart that's tired? For the one that's been tested and pushed to his limits this year? The one with an eye trained on the horizon, watching for the arrival of something oh so precious to her soul. For the weary, the waiting, for each one of us, an invitation is offered in the form of Advent. Now, Advent 
the four weeks before Christmas, means the arrival and the coming of Christ. It reminds us of a longing heart to wait with anxious expectation. is isn't just human, it's holy. Since the beginning of Genesis, since the fall, since we left the Garden of Eden, every person has been waiting, watching, and yearning for the day when every wrong will finally be made right. And our imperfect soul is begging for the one who designed it to lean down low and do some retuning. But the fixing doesn't come easily. Each day we watch things in our world break. And we lift them up to our maker with open hands. And we wait for restoration. In the four weeks leading up to Christmas, Advent gives meaning to all this waiting. It gives us permission to acknowledge tender places in our hearts and the incompletion that's so evident in our lives. And it sits with us in the silence as the weight, sometimes the weight of grief, sits in, as it does for so many families in our church this year. It recognizes the reality of unfinished chapters in our stories and the long-suffering nature of waiting, just waiting. And then Advent kind of sneaks up on us and whispers a promise in our ear and gently nudges us to lift our head and look up from our empty laps and tells us to get ready. And slowly hope begins to take root in our heart, even though they may be broken. Advent tells us the story of someone who is coming to mend, to restore, to put an end to our waiting. And when God decided to put on human flesh and visit us in the form of a baby, he gave us a glimpse of what it means to be complete. He gave us a taste of what a relationship with him uh, will look like, that relationship, that full relationship that's still to come. So we learn to wait with anticipation, and these days leading up to Christ's birth, we learn the meaning of waiting for him to come again for this complete and total union with Christ that will never be undone. Now, if there's anyone that could tell us or teach us about waiting, it would be Ruth and Naomi. How long did the minutes feel as Ruth and Naomi waited for these scenes in the book of Ruth, and particularly in Ruth chapter 4, for these scenes to play out. How long did the months and years feel after the death of Naomi's husband, Elimelech? How long did the years feel for Boaz to be alone and finally to marry Ruth the Moabite? And yet, in God's providence, all that waiting came to an end in the little town of Bethlehem. In some ways, the great problem that our narrator has set out to resolve in the book of Ruth is how shall the name of Elimelech be preserved in Israel now that he has no heir? Naomi, his widow, cannot bear him a son. Ruth, his daughter-in-law, likewise, she's lost her husband, Malon. And so Elimelech's name, along with his allotment, of land in the promised land in Israel is about to be lost forever. To possess real estate in the land of promise that could be passed on to your heirs served as kind of a sign that you belonged to God's people and that his covenant blessings belong to you and to your heirs forever. 
And so to lose your land and to have your name disappear from the roles of God's people is a terrible thing. And that's the great crisis in this storyline that the narrator's trying to resolve. Now, as we saw last Sunday in Ruth 3, Boaz, who himself belongs to the clan of Elimelech, stands in a position to rescue Naomi and the family name of Elimelech by marrying Ruth the Moabite and raising up an heir to Elimelech. And for his part, the matter is brought to his attention. Boaz immediately promises to see to the issue first thing in the morning. But he tells Ruth, introducing this note of tension into the story, there's someone else more closely related to Elimelech. There is a nearer kinsman redeemer. And this other man has a prior claim. So whatever Boaz's feelings are in the matter, whatever his feelings for Ruth, however much he wants to marry Ruth, he can't. He can't redeem Ruth and Naomi until and unless this nearer redeemer refuses to do so. And so now we see how things go when Boaz swings into action. I want you to notice, for the first time in the story, Ruth and Naomi take a back seat. In fact, they drop out of view almost entirely. There's no direct speech attributed to them for the remainder of the book. All the action, all the spotlight, all the attention now falls entirely on Boaz. He's been in the background, but now he comes to the front. And as we watch him act on behalf of Naomi and Ruth, I want you to notice how he's a type or a preview, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we learn concerns the Savior we need. The Savior we need. And that's the first blank there in your outline. Verses 1 through 6, the Savior we need. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Well, first of all, let's think about the kind of Savior we need. Look at verse 1. Boaz is a man of his word and true to form, having promised the night before that he would deal with this issue quickly, now that the sun is up, it looks like he's gone directly from the threshing floor to the city gate. And there he sat down. Now, in those days, the city gate is the equivalent of the city hall or the county courthouse. It's a place of business and legal transactions and judicial, judicial decisions. 
So by sitting down there, Boaz is essentially giving public notice of his intention to conduct a legal transaction. And by the way, don't miss, there's a delightful note in this text that highlights again for us the amazing providence of God. I don't know if you saw it, but it's right there. Boaz has taken his seat, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Impeccable timing. This is God at work. He paces Boaz's steps from the threshing floor to the city gate perfectly. So just as Boaz sits down, you never guess just who happens to come by. The very man that Boaz needs to see. And it's a clue to us that however nervous Naomi or Ruth or Boaz may be, however they're feeling at this moment in time in the story, they don't need to be afraid and we don't need to be afraid because God has impeccable timing. And he'll work out his purposes for the good of his people and the glory of his name. So Boaz seizes the opportunity, end of verse 1. Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he quickly calls the court into session. Ten elders of the city are asked to join them. And they sit down very skillfully. He begins to present his case. Verse 3. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. There's no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. In other words, this is a great business opportunity. Naomi's not just selling the land itself, but the rights to the use of it and the profits that come from it. So upon her return from Moab to Bethlehem, she gets the use, the benefits, the profits from the land. And that's what she's selling in order to provide for herself and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, in order to avoid being in poverty. And if this near redeemer buys the field, he ensures that at least it stays within the same clan from which Elimelech had come. And the man's excited. Look at verse 4. He says, I will redeem it. And he thinks about it. He gets to add another piece of property to his portfolio. And he's eager. Without any hesitation, he says, I will redeem it. But being an honor graduate of the renowned Bethlehem School of Law and Agriculture, Boaz is an expert in how to drive a hard bargain and write a beneficial contract. So he skillfully follows up the second part of the bargain. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So in effect, Boaz tells the man, Great news, great opportunity. Naomi will be so relieved. So let's finish this deal. Just sign here, here, and here. Initial here, here, and here. And while you're doing that, there's just one more small thing that I forgot to tell you about. It's a small matter, nothing to worry about. Your new real estate comes with a mother-in-law and a new wife and an obligation to raise a son on your own dime of course, until he's old enough to take back the land that you're buying here today on behalf of Ruth and her dead husband and her father-in-law. Anyway, as I was saying, just sign here, here, and here. 
It's a master stroke of careful negotiation. And as Boaz drops this bombshell on this poor guy, you can almost envision sort of mid-transaction the blood just drained from his face. And suddenly he changes his tune, verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he's perfectly happy to help Naomi and Ruth out of a tight spot when it looked like he would gain a profitable piece of land from the business deal. But it's a whole other matter now. It's been made clear that along with the land, he gets all the responsibility for Elimelech's dependents. Any son that Ruth bore him would be considered Elimelech's heir, not his. And in the end, this land that he purchases wouldn't belong to him, but to the heir. And so he's worried that Naomi and Ruth, in effect, are going to bleed him dry. And so he says, I'll endanger my own inheritance while I'm trying to save theirs. No thanks. So you see what's going on. While he stood to gain, he was happy to be a redeemer, but not if it costs too much. But Boaz isn't like that. When the man tells Boaz to redeem it in his place, Boaz is quick to perform this rather strange little ritual in verse 7 and 8 that seals the deal. The nearer redeemer gives Boaz his sandal, and the contract is settled. And Boaz calls the elders to bear witness, and he's bought the field, and much more than that, with this sort of tone of triumph, although it reads sort of like this cold, heartless legal work, all legal work is cold and heartless, right? You check with my attorney. Um, but at long last, he's won Ruth to be his wife. And he'll be the one to preserve the name of Elimelech's family forever. Now, you have to understand, Boaz has to bear the same cost, endure the same liabilities, take the same risks as the other redeemer. But where the other redeemer wouldn't take the risks, Boaz is prepared to commit everything to redeem Naomi and Ruth and secure the name of the family. He acts unhesitatingly. Is that a word? I think it is now. He acts wisely. He acts faithfully. He keeps his promise to Ruth and Naomi. Most of all, he acts sacrificially. He willingly shoulders the obligation, even if in so doing, it will be to his own disadvantage. Isn't that the kind of Savior we need? A Redeemer who rescues us at great cost to himself? A Redeemer who loves us and has given himself for us? Boaz is a reminder of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be sure, there's other alternatives out there, other so-called Redeemers who seem to promise much and to whom you can turn. There's a whole array of empty religions to choose from. There's countless outlets for the pursuit of pleasure that our culture says will set you free. You can rest your hope for significance and satisfaction in family, in intellect, in some vague, ill-defined spirituality. And at first, they all seem valid redeemers. But no one will do for you what the one greater than Boaz has already done. He's the one who gives at great cost. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's the one who pays the greatest price, Philippians 2.8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the one who redeems us, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That was one of the memory verses, communicants class memorized. They memorized five. Go ahead. Okay. And uh, the... Uh, but it finishes, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He bears all the cost of our salvation. We have nothing to pay. He incurs all the obligation. He pays with his blood at Calvary. You've been wasting your time chasing the wrong redeemers, one who will never save you in the end. But Jesus is the Savior we need. But the Savior we need then leads us to the service we owe. Leads us to the service we owe, verses 7 through 10. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off the sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So first of all, there was the Savior we need. Boaz points us to him. Turn there, look there, run there. Jesus, the one greater than Boaz, is a perfect redeemer. Then secondly, the Savior we need leads us to the service we owe. When Boaz met the other redeemer in the gate that morning, go all the way back to verse 1 and notice how he addresses him. In the English translation, this is a place where you know, the Hebrew and English don't line up exactly. It says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now that phrase translated friend, and I really would love to sit in on the translation meetings. Um, it's actually a rhyming Hebrew expression that doesn't have any real equivalent, but it's polonial mani. And the New Jewish Publication Society, which publishes Hebrew Bible, they translate this phrase as Mr. So-and-so. It's actually what they say. Mr. So-and-so. Turn aside, Mr. So-and-so, and sit here. And the writer is highlighting his namelessness. Could have called him simply the other man or the other redeemer. It seems as though the narrator's going out of his way to call him Mr. So-and-so. He's telling us something important about this guy. And we begin to see what it is when we remember that the great concern of the book of Ruth is the preservation of the name and the inheritance of Elimelech. And names are important. We saw that in the first chapter. They all have meaning. And that's the dilemma that Boaz is trying to resolve, to preserve the name 
And the great irony of this part of the story is the man who's in the first position to secure the preservation of Elimelech's name is the man whose name is deliberately hidden by the narrator. He's just Mr. So-and-so. His name is forgotten. It's blotted out of the record. We don't know who he is. You know, throughout Scripture, having your name blotted out is a dreadful thing. It's symbolic of the curse and condemnation of God. So, for example, in his wrath, God threatened to blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, Deuteronomy 9. Let me alone, I might destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. Or we see the psalmist write in Psalm 109, there's a curse on the wicked. Echoes much of the message of the book of Ruth. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. That's what Mr. So-and-so could have avoided for Elimelech. But in his refusal to do so, that's what he ends up experiencing himself. His name is blotted out. See, there's two redeemers in this passage. One serves himself and has no name. The other one serves others, and his name, Boaz, is never forgotten. You may recall that Jesus said in John chapter 12, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Isn't that the message here? Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever seeks to make a name for themselves at the expense of others loses their name in the end. But whoever is willing to give all to redeem others, their names are never forgotten. That's Boaz. And that's the Christian life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's your calling. To be sure, Boaz reminds us of Christ and his selflessness as he redeems Ruth and Naomi. But here's the question. Would others watching you think of Christ just as Boaz has reminded us of Christ? Is there much of the Savior in your selfless conduct? Does your life suggest Jesus? Will your name be preserved in the book of life, or will you just be another Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, who despite their words lived the life that showed they really didn't follow Christ after all? In the end, the service we owe isn't just to those around us. It's to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason we call this a worship service. We serve Christ when we worship him. We serve Christ when our life reminds others of Jesus. We serve Christ when we do something for others in Jesus' name. Savior, we need the service we owe and finally the salvation we receive. Look at verses 11 and 12, the salvation we receive. Particularly look at the blessing pronounced by the people and the elders upon Boaz and Ruth as this marriage is finally secured. We read there, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. And then they have this blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, 
who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah. It's a very hard word to say. And be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Rachel and Leah, if you remember, were the wives of Israel's patriarch Jacob. You know, through much of the Bible, we hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob's a big deal in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. And his wives are Rachel and Leah. And uh, there's a long story there. But by comparing Ruth to Rachel and Leah, these elders are saying something extraordinary, filled with significance about this Moabite woman. Same thing is true of their prayer, that Ruth's son would be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Judah is Boaz's direct ancestor. Bethlehem belongs to the territory allotted to the tribe of Judah. And Tamar, like Ruth, was a Gentile. And Tamar, like Ruth, bore Perez through Leverite marriage, which is the system where the closest relative marries the widow. Although unlike Ruth, if you go back and read the story, Tamar's actions are sort of seedy and manipulative, whereas Ruth acts with godliness and integrity. But in making these connections, do you see the extraordinary point the elders are making? They're recognizing Ruth as a true Israelite, even though she's a Moabite. They're saying she belongs as much as them. And they're praying that she'll have a role like Rachel and Leah and Tamar. It's almost as if they have some sense that this marriage signifies great future blessing, not just for Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, but for the whole people of God. And so it will, but we'll see that next week. But for now, you can see that Ruth the outsider is now Ruth the insider. Ruth the stranger, the alien, the foreigner, the Moabite, is now Ruth, the heir of Israel's matriarchs and caretaker of Judah's future. That's what the kinsman redeemer does for her. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. He takes us from outside, and he brings us all the way in. He takes us from a place of exclusion and brings us into the family of God. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, if you ever want to do an interesting study, just go through all the places in the Bible that says, but now. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When you come to trust in the true kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, you stop being a stranger to the people of God. You start to become a member of the family. No matter how far outside you may think you are, through Christ there's a way into the family and into the household of God. The gospel takes Moabites and makes them heirs of the heritage of the people of God. The gospel makes sinners saints. It forgives the guilty. It cleanses the dirty. It releases the captive. It sets the prisoners free. There's room for you. You're invited 
in. All you need is a kinsman redeemer. And one of the remarkable features, we noticed this at the very beginning, one of the remarkable features about the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth is that for the first time, all the action is driven not by Naomi and not by Ruth, but by Boaz. The opening sentence of verse 4 has an unusual Hebrew sentence structure. It places the subject before the verb. Don't have to worry about it. No, you're not all English teachers. But it makes Boaz the very first word. Boaz is highlighted. It's designed so that your eyes fall on Boaz. As you scan through the chapter, all the active verbs relate to Boaz. Boaz is the actor on behalf of Ruth and Naomi. They're passive. And his stance is summed up in the last verse of chapter 3. Look at the last verse of Ruth 3. What's their attitude? Ruth 3.18. Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. How do you come in from the outside into the family and household of God? You do it by no work of your own, but you do it by resting, like Naomi and Ruth, entirely on the work of your kinsman redeemer. All the attention falls on him. All the action is his. You do it by clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's done all that's necessary to save you. There's nothing for you to do but trust him. Nothing to do but wait. Confident that he'll settle the matter. There's room for you in the kingdom of God because the work of a perfect kinsman redeemer and all you need to do is to come in from the outside into the family, into the household of faith is to rest, is to trust upon him. Our students said it this morning. They said they receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. So this Advent, let's wait with meaning. Like a people who, although we are often bruised from a world that's just in crisis, we've known the closeness of our Savior. Even more, let's wait with hope. The hope that comes from knowing our every need may not arrive today, it may not get answered today, it may not get resolved today, but our waiting isn't in vain. The story isn't over, the day hasn't dawned, but the first rays are appearing on the horizon and the celebration that comes in the morning is just around the corner. The sense of waiting under the providential hand of God is at the heart of Advent. We aren't waiting for Jesus to be born. Rather, we're waiting for Jesus to return and to make the world new and right every wrong. And yet we're waiting all the time. And what gives us confidence is when the fullness of time comes again, Jesus will return because he came once before. Today we remember the little town of Bethlehem that lies still in its sleep while Jesus was born, the one who is rich beyond all splendor, becoming poor, for our sake. And we hear again the work of the kinsman redeemer. We're reminded of how much it cost him to redeem us, how great our purchase price was, and above all, how amazing is the providence that governed all of God's creatures and all their actions to bring all things together at just the right time. Ultimately, that's the message of the book of Ruth that the one whom God promised would bruise the serpent's head is coming. 
He's going to be the savior of Gentiles, of Moabites, as well as Jews. He'll be the savior of women, as well as men. The savior of slave, as well as free. Greater than Boaz, greater than King David. They would be his ancestors according to the flesh, but were included in his family according to the spirit. Christ is our kinsman, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, made in every way as we are, touched by the feeling of our infirmities, and Christ is our our redeemer. He is our Boaz, purchasing us and obtaining for us such a great inheritance. One day, our names will perish. We will die and be forgotten just as a dream dies at the break of day. And we will pay the wages of sin, and we will perish and our bodies will decay, dust we are, and to dust we will, we will return. But Christ has written the names of his people in the book of life. He has engraved our names on the palms of his hands with indelible grace. He wears these names on his breastplate as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It is for these names he prays. He mentions them by name to his father. He preserves our worthless names and is preparing an inheritance. The Bible says such a great inheritance for us in his father's house. You have a kinsman redeemer in Jesus. And he can give you a name indelibly written in the book of life. Without him, you're just Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. And your name is blotted out forever. Don't let that happen. Take the stance of Ruth and Naomi. Trust in the one greater than Boaz to act for you. The Savior we need is the Lord Jesus Christ. The service we owe is for those who follow him and serve him and worship him. And the salvation we receive is for those of us who are Moabite outsiders, Gentile outsiders, and yet find a place in the life of the covenant people of God. There's no one so far away, no one so lost, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you, who were once strangers and aliens, without hope and without God in the world, are brought near and made fellow citizens and members of the household of God. You become his, and he knows your name. Thank him for that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ our Lord. Thank you for Jesus who has done all the work, who has settled the matter by giving himself and paying the price and bearing the cost of our sin in his body on the cross. 
Help us to cling to him, our perfect kinsman redeemer, to follow him. And as we do, would you make us servants of his whose lives remind others of Jesus? For this we give you thanks in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.